Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we'll be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We'll be sharing real-life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today we have a guest who embraces her life and career to the fullest by welcoming changes that constantly challenge her to learn and grow. Her fearless take-command mindset earned her the position of CEO and managing partner of a major U.S. brokerage firm, and she was recently named one of the most powerful women in business by Fortune magazine. We're excited to welcome CEO and managing partner of Edward Jones, Penny Pennington. So Penny, welcome to Take Command, of Dale Carnegie podcast. Great to have you with us today. Great to be with you, Joe. Thanks for the opportunity. You've got a story that is really so incredible in terms of just all that you've accomplished in your life. You're leading a top company, 49,000 brokers, iconic company, Edward Jones, one of Fortune's most powerful women in business. Um, So definitely want to ask about your career and some of the lessons you've had. As we start, though, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Talk about your journey and, and really what led you to where you are today. I don't know about you, Joe, but I, I still feel like such a young person. And when when people describe me as, you know, this long journey and all these, I, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder who they're talking about. I was raised in Nashville, went to school at University of Virginia, came out and went into a management training program for baby bankers and uh, was in the banking industry for about 14 years in corporate and investment banking and realized that there was just something missing professionally. I didn't know what it was. I knew there was an itch that needed to be scratched. And I found Edward Jones on the internet one night on monster.com in 1999. And I saw two things, the business model and the investment philosophy. Both those things were exceedingly attractive to me because it was really going to matter that it was me who showed up every day and I was going to be building trust one-on-one with families in Michigan, which is where my branch was. And I love the idea of both of those things. So I became an Edward Jones financial advisor in January of 2000, built my practice for six years, and then was invited into our home office location in St. Louis um, to be part of home office management and um, have had several stops. This is my fifth role since I've been here in St. Louis since 2006, my fifth role each time. Uh, learning something very, very new, which is what's been very attractive about each subsequent role. There were moments when I didn't really think I was qualified for the next role going into, but those around me, my supporters, and this slice of mutual support made that possible and made that learning and growth and development possible and became our firm's sixth managing partner two years ago. Congratulations on that. And I know you've done a tremendous job in that role. Talk for a second about that feeling that you've had at different points about not feeling qualified, because a lot of people will feel that. We all feel that at different times, but talk about a time when you felt that and and really how you overcame that. You mentioned some of the people, but how did you overcome that? Well, as I reflect back now over the many stops I've had in my career and some of the common things that I was thinking and feeling through each one of those, one of them was first, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. What do I get to do next? What do I get to learn next? And what I've realized in observing others and listening to others talk about their progression and what they were thinking and feeling, I realized that something that I wasn't doing 
was what I call mental calculus about what that next role was. What's the mental calculus? What does this mean for me three years from now and five years from now? And how is all this gonna add up? And what is everybody else gonna think about it? For whatever reason, I just wasn't doing that mental calculus. And so there was a sense of anticipation and excitement as opposed to a sense of what do I need to know and do and what's going to happen next. I think that that has really helped me, frankly. And so I advise other people, do the best you can to drop that mental calculus about whatever the next opportunity is. However, I did several times feel like, now, wait a minute, how can they possibly think I'm qualified for that? When are they going to find me out? And then one story that I want to share with you about a time when I really wanted to do this new thing and really considered myself not qualified for it. It was a moment in time when a leader had left our organization and we were searching for the next leader for a very important part of the firm. I recognized the type of traits and frankly, the strategy that I wanted that new leader to be focused on. But I said I wasn't qualified for that leadership position because I hadn't held a particular role that this leadership position led. And I thought that that would result in my lacking of credibility with those that I was going to be leading. Well, the person that straightened me out on that was my husband. Because I went home and told him this story and he just looked at me and he said, do you realize that you just disqualified yourself from a place that you have the point of view, the strategic mindset, and the confidence of those around you to carry that role? I'll never forget it. He said, I don't know what you're going to do about this, but you better fix it. And what I realized in that moment was that the failure would have been not seeking to put myself in a position where my point of view, my strategic mindset, what I thought would be right for the future of the organization could be seen and heard. That would have been the failure, would have been not to try. And so I went back to my colleagues and I almost literally raised my hand for the role. It worked out. I was able to succeed in that role in no small part very much because of those around me supported me in learning what I needed to learn, but also bringing my strategic point of view to the table. But my husband taught me a lot in that moment. Well, it sounds like that really was a defining moment in so many ways. You were trying to be honest about what you saw as a shortcoming. And at the same time, you kind of had said no, but then you kind of came around and took it. So how did that all work out? What happened once you jumped into that role? I love what you just said. I felt like I was being honest. I felt it was a very high integrity move to make, to say, I'm not exactly qualified for this because I don't have this thing or that thing. But I think that's a really key point that you make, Joe. There's another kind of integrity that has to do with speaking up, with putting yourself in a position to make a meaningful difference for others, for your organization, for the cause that you're affiliated with. That's an element of integrity that sometimes I believe we, we kind of push to the side um, because it feels more right to say I'm not qualified. How did that work out? Well, a couple of funny stories. I went into that role with a particular strategic point of view. It was refined over a short period of time. It was 
co-created with those that I was leading and my peers. And we took that part of the organization into some new places, thinking about some things that those that we were leading wanted us to think about. They've been itching for the organization to be thinking about that for several years. So it unleashed a certain kind of creativity. It was, there was also a moment I remember when someone that I was leading, who I trust very much, also stepped into the space and said, Penny, you're new here. I mean, I've been here for several years, and here is my point of view about what I believe we should do. I need your help in co-creating that. And we joined forces to co-create something with our peers that was very, very powerful. And then I'll just be real, real plain about it. About three years afterwards, a colleague who I admire and trust very much in a very tender moment said, Penny, there were some of us who didn't think that you'd be the right leader. We'd never had a woman in this role before, and we just weren't sure about you. But you know what? It's worked out just fine. And I value so much that he was willing to open that up to me because I knew that might be in the background somewhere. It was not ever anything that was overt or a meaningful part of my my leadership journey. And I know that Unfortunately, that is a meaningful part of other women's leadership journey. But in this case, I really appreciated that he just made it real in that respect. A lot of times people lack the courage to speak up. When you spoke up originally to say, I'm not sure I'm the right person for this or I lack this, it was from a point of integrity, but other people lack the confidence. What advice might you give someone when they're at that point where they're not so sure, but they need to look inside themselves and to take that next chance moving forward? Because I know you mentor a lot of people. So what kind of advice might you give people around developing their internal confidence? I believe it goes back to the fundamental root of who you are as a human being. What is your purpose? What is your why? What is it that catalyzes you, galvanizes you, provokes you? What is the thing that you cannot say no to? As much as you'd like to, you simply can't say no to it. It's what excites you. It's what gets your heart beating faster. I do believe that it is really important for each of us to know that. And in most cases, to have it written down. Because that is what catalyzes that kind of moment when you say, I think I'm terrified of this, but I also think if that's my purpose, if that's my why, I have no choice but to speak up, to say this thing, to try this thing. That's thing one. Thing two is that all of us have supporters around us who have confidence in us. And I have just learned that if it's someone that I respect who has confidence that I can do it, or I can be it, or I have something to add, I should not disrespect their confidence. These are smart people. They didn't get where they are by making poor decisions about people or strategy or purpose. And if they think I've got something to give, then it's up to me to respect that and to follow that. Isn't that really true? Sometimes people will see something in ourselves that we don't necessarily see. When they do see that, we should honor that, right? By trusting them as well. You've talked about people who've supported you. Even when you went into that role, you had people who helped you and built you and so forth. What advice might you have about surrounding ourselves and finding people who are supporters or mentors? 
well, find them, right? And there is this important difference, Joe, that I know we're all reading about and that we experience, the difference between networking and mentorship and sponsorship. We need to approach all of those things. We need good networks. We need core networking and we need those concentric circles of people and organizations in particular that are affiliated with our purpose, that really fire that, that inspire us, but also teach us about how to enlarge that and access it. We need mentors who can give us advice and counsel and we need sponsors people who are talking about us and our skills when we're not in the room. We need all of those things. I think fundamentally, it comes from a place of curiosity and wanting to learn. I know that my purpose is going to be enlarged and accessible only if I partner with other people. So I'm looking for like-minded colleagues. We can co-create our strategy. We can think about future-proofing our organization. We can think about making our community a place of even greater well-being. I want to work with those people. I want to know who they are. I want them to know who I am. It is much more likely that we can, in partnership, achieve what we're trying to achieve. So as Mr. Rogers said, I'm looking for the helpers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it doesn't hurt, like you said, to be clear about what your purpose is. It seems like if we're clear and we're intentional, it's easier to find those helpers. And sometimes they come right to us as well. So so talk a little bit about your role and responsibility at Edward Jones. I mean, you're leading this kind of iconic company, well-known company. I think you have 49,000 associates across North America. Talk a little bit about the responsibilities that you see and, and really some of the most important things that you are working toward. Sure. Well, our reason for being, our why as an organization is to improve the well-being of millions of clients and tens of millions of investors who aren't yet our clients, but but are serious long-term individual investors who have goals and hopes and dreams for their families and their futures and are looking for a trusted relationship with a guide, with a financial guide to help them achieve what matters most to them. That's our why, that's our fundamental purpose. We've been around for 98 years doing that. The needs of consumers are changing rapidly. The marketplace has many, many options for investors to get service and get the guidance that they are seeking. We have a particular way of serving those serious long-term investors. We get to know them. We get to know their families. We get to know generations of their families. We are hyper-local. We have a brick-and-mortar location in two-thirds of the over 3,000 counties in the United States and all 10 provinces in Canada. Our job as an organization is to serve them, serve more of them, and serve more of them better across generations, in many different places and in many different ways, because while the common element is going to be the deep trusted human relationship, the way that people want to interface with technology, the types of goals they have, the complexity of their lives and their goals means that that one-on-one human interaction of having a guide helping them balance all of those trade-offs is what's critically important. That's the way that we provide value. And so my job is to help us 
determine the contemporary and future ways of helping our current and future clients, where they are, who they are, how they want to be served, and by whom they want to serve. All of those elements of our strategy then come together uh, to do what we call future-proofing our organization and the value that we provide. It's my job to help lead that, to set the ambition of our organization and to create the conditions that enable that ambition to be met. And that ambition goes straight back to our purpose, our why of making a meaningful, positive difference in the lives of millions of people. I'll also say that I'm the purpose pole and the culture carrier. The purpose pole, the image I have is, you know, the big circus tents that when you were a kid, it'd pop up in the parking lot and you could see it from blocks away and you go, I want to go, I want to go, I want to see what that's all about. Well, the bigger the tent, the more exciting it seemed. And a tent is built based on one long pole, the long pole in the tent, which is the, the metaphor for the thing that's most important. That's our purpose. It's my responsibility to really be the carrier of that message, to galvanize our organization and all of us around it, and to ensure that I'm the embodiment of the culture that's going to help make all that happen. One of the things that clearly is one of the most important responsibilities of a leader is vision. And that's going to what you're talking about right now, purpose and setting the ambition and so forth. What are some of the strategies you've had for being able to do that? And how has COVID affected that? Either how you communicate or how you articulate your vision? Well, fundamentally, having a vision that's meaningful to other people means getting in touch with who you are as a real person. It goes back to your purpose and why as an individual. And then putting yourself in an organization with like-minded folks. I'm going to implore all of your listeners to be part of an organization with like-minded people who are, who are seeking some of the same kinds of things that you are. Not from an ambition standpoint of what's the next role. I mean an ambition standpoint of the way that you're seeking to affect people. So that vision comes from being a real person, being with other real people who are trying to make a difference, who have an ambition to make a difference. And then frankly, having some imagination about that. In so many respects for so many of our organizations, we're consumers. We're thinking about what's valuable in our own lives, what's making a difference in our own lives. We learn from those things and we bring them back to our organization. So be a real person, be a real consumer and test whether your own organization is delivering the kind of value that you'd want as a consumer and set the ambition high. You know, consumers in our space, investors and consumers, savers, families, they've got a lot of really complex problems. And you asked how COVID had affected this. Well, the complexity of the issues to be met by a family has just increased from a triple pandemic that includes a health crisis and economic crisis and a renewed focus as it should be on this conversation about what do we want our neighborhoods, our communities, what do we want as citizens? The complexity of those discussions has only been dialed up with COVID, which directly affects the way that we need to be prepared to meet our clients and investors to help them achieve whatever it is that's most important to them. The changing dynamics are something you've talked about and the ability of a leader to be agile is something that is absolutely critical. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you face this from a leadership standpoint. How did you help your organization be 
agile? How did you help your team members throughout the country really know how to respond and to get their hands around how they interact with their clients and so forth, how they serve as a real person and so forth to address the needs that they have? It comes from a tenant that I really like that it is possible to hold two completely opposite thoughts in your mind at the same time and have both of them be true at the same time. So in answer to the question that you're asking about this past year and what we've learned and how we did this, thought one is that there has been no playbook this year. We have never, ever been through anything like this before. We may have been, and we have been, through crises before that we've, we've reoriented, we've pivoted. We've never been through anything like this in terms of any one of those individual triple pandemics that I talked about, but we've certainly never been through a situation where we've combined all of them. And the environment has been so rapidly changing and chaotic at the same time. So there has been no playbook. We could not look to the past and turn the page back 10 years and say, oh, that's what we need to do. Didn't have that playbook. But the other thought that is equally as true is that we have a set of guiding principles that have never changed. Those guiding principles are what has guided us through this past year. We stay connected to our clients, our colleagues, and our communities, no matter what. So we are absolutely devoted, more than we have ever been, to stay connected to those stakeholders, to those constituencies. And so along about April, I, I read something in a morning devotional that said, start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible. And before long, you will find yourself doing the impossible. And that's described this year to a T. We didn't have a playbook, but because we had these guiding principles, we knew what we had to do. And some of the things that we did, if you told us a year ago that we were gonna get them done and get them done in many cases in days or hours, we would have said you were crazy. But that's what guided us. And as a result, we have thrived and our clients have thrived. We've stayed connected to them. We've added clients significantly this year because they've seen the value that we can provide by being part of their family and part of their community. Like you said, being focused on those core values, being able to articulate those core values and to just stay true to them. Ultimately, a, a core component of building trust. So... Yeah, we were talking uh, before we started a little bit about Dale Carnegie and kind of the influence that Dale Carnegie's had uh, on you or other people around you. would love to hear about that. Yeah. I read um, Making Friends and Influencing People. When I was 14 or 15 years old, my father gave it to me. My father was a corporate executive, retired after a career as a CEO of a publicly traded company. We're a private partnership, but the daddy-daughter CEO thing is, is kind of a neat story. And he and my mother were both executives in the organizations that they worked for and had such an influence on me. 
I saw them with integrity. We were talking about integrity before influencing so many people and organizations around them and committed to so many people and organizations around them. And so anything that they suggested I do, I did take it on board. I'm sure there were moments where I tried to push it away or rebel against it, but Dale Carnegie was one of those influences when I was in my mid-teens. And then getting ready for our conversation, Joe, I was talking to my husband last night and he said, so do you know anybody whose life has been changed by Dale Carnegie? And I said, well, I'm, I'm sure I do. I can't exactly put my finger on it. He said, I do. I do. A friend in college, his life was changed by Dale Carnegie and the tenets of Dale Carnegie. So talk about tenets and principles that are long lasting and enduring and immutable. Even in the changing world that we're in today, here we are talking about Dale Carnegie. There is something deeply human about the principles of the organization that endure. It's interesting you say that because sometimes people ask, these principles are over 100 years. What relevance do they have today? The reality is that they're every bit as relevant today, maybe more so. People are still people. We may communicate differently or interact differently, but at our heart, the same principles that guided us 100 years ago still apply every bit as much today. I want to ask you, you talked about the daddy-daughter CEO dynamic, and that resonates with me. Um, I have six children, four daughters. But my first four uh, children are girls, and I've always wanted them to be, and I talk to them about being strong young women. And it's a real priority for me that they have this confidence, courage, a lot of the things you talked about, speaking up, stepping up, and so forth. What advice would you have either for young women who are really looking to advance in their careers or to parents who are really trying to help their daughters or their sons, but their daughters really stand up with confidence? Well, the first piece of advice I'm going to give, it would come from my father. And it is a piece of advice from leader to leader, because we as leaders have the power. I don't love that word, but people know what that word means. We have the power to affect the structures that enable the conditions that unleash the creativity, the innovation, the spirit, the why of every person in our organization. So my father, there were a couple of points in conversations that he had with me where he said, because I see you in other women and other men that I'm leading in my organization, and because I want you to have all of the opportunities that you deserve, I'm thinking about leadership differently. I'm thinking about the things that I need to do, the things that I need to change about our structures. But he also said, and he's a very authentic person, I need to change the way I think and the way I see the world. So the piece of advice that I'm giving first to leaders is create that kind of environment. So you're having a conversation with yourself about your own beliefs, about the way that you're, you're relating interpersonally, as well as about the structures in our organizations to ensure that they enable the unleashing of me, <laughs> of your daughters, of yep. your sons, of everybody who's in your organization. And then for those like me, like your daughters, like your sons, it goes back to what we've been sharing in this conversation. Find your own personal why. Recognize that you are enough. You are qualified. Based on that why, based on the skills that you have and the competencies that you're building, you are enough to be where you are today, 
where you should be tomorrow. Keep lifting your hand, raising your aspiration and your ambition, and look for the helpers. What a great message. It's fully in line. Dale Carnegie would always say that, you know, every person has inherent greatness. And it's really what you're saying here too. And really to give people that confidence to step up and to see that greatness, to unleash it, as you said, is tremendous. Penny, any closing thoughts or lessons you'd like to share with our audience? Just a few minutes ago, we were talking about leadership. And I believe that the necessity of effective leadership is showing its worth like never before. And one of those immutable tenets of Dale Carnegie is listening, is being an empathetic person, seeking to understand, seeking to learn from and understand others so that we can collaborate, we can co-create even more effectively. Empathetic leadership, being a real human being and being willing to step into that with confidence, but also humility is more than ever a hallmark of leadership. I think that what we have learned about that during this amazing year, we will never unlearn. Well, thank you so much, Penny. Great lessons, great insights about leadership and about authenticity and integrity. So thank you for being with us today. Really appreciate you. Joe, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks to all your listeners. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening. And we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.